is destroyed nonchalance. Taking culture apart one episode at a time. A social commentary podcast on pop culture, fashion, film, and music. This week we're talking about media and mediatization. Hi, last week, Serena, Rick, and I talked about identity, and this week we started on a new topic. It's media and mediatization, and understanding how the act of communication can impact society. I'd like to hear more about how it's going and how you're getting through it and what the, what the deadlines are right now. Like, what's the timing of everything like? Yeah, so um, the launch of the magazine is next week. Um so I've been frantically, um, me and my editor have been kind of putting everything together and thinking about distribution and yeah, it's kind of printed, stitched and um, ready to be out there for Tuesday and it will be available um, at all the major uh, tube stations because it's going to be a supplement of the Evening Standard. I'm talking about that. Yeah, I'm talking about the magazine editions. So how are you feeling during all of this? Um, it's pretty exciting. Um, I am. I'm, I'm excited. And I'm kind of proud of myself that I've been able to put something together and, you know, put my work in the magazine. I mean, I've got a copy of the magazine, so it's quite exciting. And I showed my family yesterday and they were like, oh, gosh, you know. And are there other details of the magazine that we might not, that you should draw our attention to, that you had a role in, that you're responsible for? Um, so I was doing the proofreading, um, helping with how the, the look of the magazine as a whole, you know, what stories uh, people might find interesting. Yeah, I mean, I, I had a hand in editing some articles, you know, I was back and forth from London. Kind of yeah, just putting uh, the effort in. Um, and you said, you said you had a hand in the way the magazine looks. Yes, yeah. Well, not I didn't actually do the graphic design, but the colours and what looks best and where to put articles and the reviews right. at the back and you know just how it was, um, you know, structured. Right. So you were directing. So you were like directing the team for the the structure of the magazine and the look and yeah, layout. Yeah, I mean, directed. Yeah, I guess it was like yeah, me and me and the editor, kind of buckling down and deciding uh, what to tell the designers and how to go about um, coming up with the vision that we had. Right, right. Wow, that's really cool. You must have loved it. I would love doing something yeah, like I that. Yeah, I did. I really, really enjoyed it. Really, really enjoyed it. Um, you know, and it's something I, I want to carry on doing. So, Rick, what have you been up to this week? Well, I've been, well, we have been um, really focused and working uh, at cafes, like, all the time. Um, not seeing the outside very much, which is a, a bit sad. It's been, it's been raining, <laughs> so it hasn't been that bad. But yeah, my research right now has kind of kicked in and have a supervi supervision meeting tomorrow. So that's why we've been working indoors a lot. Well, good luck yeah. with your, your meetings. Oh, thanks. 
Yeah, so I mean, I I have things I work on while Troy's working on that, and during the the you know lunch dinner times, we we started a a new show called The Politician. Uh, it just came out on Netflix, and it's a Ryan Murphy show. It has um, Gwyneth Paltrow, uh, Jessica Lange in it. Uh, it has a lot of uh, big names in it. I think Bed Midler is in it at some point. Oh, really? I didn't know that. Yeah, so that's uh, that's been a good show. And uh, we also are almost done with Tales of the City uh we saw um we have two episodes left and we we're kind of like saving them uh we saw the eighth episode which was really good it was it was like a time machine episode where they delve into Anna Madrigal's past and some of the secrets that are coming up now and the whole episode was played by this uh trans actor which was really good and the story and the cinematography and and everything kind of matched that time uh even it kind of reminded me of like mrs Maisel. i don't know if you've seen that show but um just a flashback so what's it about well the episode i mean you know tales of the city right yeah 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 so i mean the episode is delving back to when she first got to San Francisco and the things that happened and it links it with real life uh, events. There was a there was a cafeteria or a riot. I think it was one of the first uh, LGBTQ movement things that happened. It was like three years before Stonewall. Um, so they show some of the police brutality i guess and and some of what was going on that i wasn't even aware of uh as far as like the the history that is there so it it makes me want to learn more and it makes me really appreciate what you're doing with your project where you're highlighting history and in uh you know the diaspora uh lens so it's just like, you know, when I see one of your posts, it's like, wow, I didn't know, you know, all these things about these people or that that happened. And I think that when I was watching that episode, I it had been brought up before, but and there's a plaque at that place, but nobody really talks about that history very much. And a lot of the characters, it's kind of characters that are lost in in history until we you know, dig them back up and, and give them a stage. So I thought that that episode could become its own show. Even it, like it would be a good uh, platform. Um, but yeah, that I really like that. And that's pretty much about it for my week. So, sorry, just quickly, what, what's this politicians as well? What's that? Oh, it's pretty good. Um, well, it's a Ryan Murphy <coughs> show, so I mean, um, at least the first couple of episodes are good, and it's tracking this. It's the story of this guy who's trying to become um, high school president for his senior year because he's mapped out the success stories of all the presidents uh, that have been elected um, in the U.S. and come up with a formula that he, that he needs to follow. 
<laughs> so he has it down to like day by day what needs to happen and how it needs to happen. And this is the story of how he's trying to become elected president. But right now he's just a, a high school senior. <laughs> so it's it's really I mean, it's interesting. and it's, it's over the top. And it's really of the time. I mean, they talk about, you know, it, it's a rich family and it's a it's a, you know, wealth class thing and um it talks about like oh you know he has brothers he's adopted and he's like oh yeah we bought their way into harvard but he doesn't want to have his way bought because he sees it as a that's an a political ad against me you know down the road he's looking that far ahead um it's like he wants to get on on his own merit but it's it's interesting Yeah. Sorry, what have you been up to? I have been in research mode. Um, and I mean, I love it, but, you know, it's a process of getting into it. And then once I'm into it, it's like, okay, the tension culminates around supervision, supervision meetings, right? And so I'm kind of, I've been working on the lit review framing of fashion in general, because so far I've looked at power i've looked at you know modernity and post-modernity but she says we need more about fashion in the research so that's what i've been doing um yeah so um and there's so many different ways of looking at fashion and you know what makes sense for my project and when it came down to it i think the methodology being the actor network theory and tracing what particular actors are enrolled in what I'm studying in this network. What made sense to me was this idea of engagement because, you know, you have this social imagination that shapes how we participate, how we interpret, how we affect culture and change. And imagination is really a, a result of engagement. And that's something that you don't see a lot of in fashion literature. Uh, but engagement, you know, it's thinking, feeling, and doing. And it's only when you, it's when you synthesize engagement into interpretation through imagination that social imagination becomes active. And so that enabled me, because engagement is down to the individual level. That can be like what the actors are doing, at least what the human actors are doing. That's what I can trace and track through you know, the actor network analysis. And so once I can do that, then I can look at the emotional sides of fashion. I can look at the cognitive sides of fashion and I can look at the behaviors and practices of fashion that again, go in and contend and constitute the systems of fashion, which can then go on to be uh, analyzed according to, you know, a, a linguistics model or a communications model or um, a power model. But it's it all, none of that works unless there's engagement in the first place. And engagement is the activation of that social imagination. So that's what I've been trying to, how I structured my um, literature re review around fashion. So it brings in consumer psychology. It brings in... Um, you know, linguistics brings in power. It brings in all of it, but it helps to structure it from the level that I'm going to be analyzing things and researching things out in the field very soon. And that's at the individual level. So um, 
And then when I'm talking to these people and I'm asking, I'm going through um, the interviews with them, I can ask them about their feelings and their thoughts and their actions rather than trying to get them to break down experience or perception because it's it just seems like a more approachable language and it's very common in consumer psychology to look at things from the level of engagement so i'm kind of bringing in what i did for my marketing from my marketing background and consumer psychology and it's really making sense of all of this other humanities research that i'm doing about fashion and identity and culture does that make sense yeah, it does actually. It sounds really interesting. How are you finding, um, you know, case studies? Um, right now, it's less about case studies than it is just about how to structure theory and how to make sense of what... It's about arguments. Um, so, and I mean, that might be a criticism that I get from her or like a suggestion that I get from her after the meeting, uh, which is tomorrow. Like, okay, so... But... Um, yeah, it's almost like the theories in the thinkers and the scholars themselves of the case studies that I'm having to like organize so that I can go in and just right now I'm setting up interesting questions that will uh, prompt investigation out in the field. So yeah, uh, thanks. It's interesting and it'll be, um, good to get some feedback on that, you know, because being a fashion school and, you know, being a fashion program, I felt like this should really be strong. <laughs> so that's what I was trying to do, put together something strong, but also pulls together my interests and my, you know, different elements of my background and training. So, yeah, that's, that's been my week. It's been sitting in front of computers and iPads at tables for like hours and hours, but I have been like, I've been really disciplined about completing my journal about, um, you know, every morning and not letting that go to, to the side. And I found a really interesting book that's helping me um, just give some insight into prior, prioritizing what it is I'm spending my time doing. And it's called The Subtle Art of Not Giving a Fuck. And I know that so many people have already talked about it, and I kind of wrote it off because of the title. But... Right now, I'm in the section where he's talking about asking yourself what kind of pain you want to go through rather than what sounds good to you. It's like, okay, what what kind of problems do you want to take on because you will enjoy solving them? It's not the alleviation of problems. It's not a painless existence. It's about what kind of pain do you want because you want the rewards attached that, to working your way through that pain and solving the next round of problems and next round of problems. And so that's been really good and influential. How has that helped? Yeah, because it's like, it um, really puts the pressure on to prioritize. And it's like, okay, I mean, a lot of, it's really easy to have dreams about rewards from doing this or that, you know, I want to be a pop star because I want the adulation, but do you want to climb up the mountain to be a pop star and everything that's required? Probably not. And it's like, yeah, so it's a really gritty way of looking at what your goals really are and not just becoming attached to this idealized reward final, like, finish line that you get to it's like no there's a whole race that needs to be run before that it's a process and do you want that you have to choose your painful process because everything is going to be painful 
if especially if you're doing it right. So which pain do you want? <laughs> and is it going to get you to the finish line that you want to be at? So yeah, I mean, that's a really, to me, that sounds like a really reflective process. And I've been building that into my journal. It sounds gritty, for sure. <laughs> yeah. I love gritty, that's for sure. Yeah, yeah. No, I love it. I love it. And I, like, research is important, but I also need to like keep my sanity. So that's why I've been keeping up my journal every morning. Mediatization, I, I know it sounds like a really technical term, and um, but really it's something that we can't avoid participating in, especially today. So um, why don't we go around and just give our takes on what mediatization is. And basically it's just coming up with and exploring definitions. And then for the next podcast, we can talk about the problems and kind of critique the process and critique what it gives rise to. So today, let's just talk about defining it and what it means to us, our understandings. Well, I, I really had to look up the word because when you say the word that way, mediatization to me seems like something different and there might be different definitions of it. But to me, mediatization is uh, taking something that you do in the real world and digitizing it, putting a media stamp on it. And I mean, that's not really what the definition that I found online says, and it's essentially um how process of communication transforms society and how media shapes and frames the conversation. That's what I found the definition to be. And um, I guess um, to me, it always seemed like we're in a race to mediatize everything, news consumption, our lives and social media, our homes. Conversations like this. Yeah, but I think that I'm seeing it differently from what the definition is does that make sense i don't know <laughs> yeah well like <clears throat> the way i see it like there's mediation and that's the the more basic just active communication but then there's mediatization where that actually starts creating changes in culture and society um so you can't have mediatization without mediation does that make sense and for me, it's even hard to think about mediation without thinking about mediatization. They are two different things. I mean, mediatization, mediatization to me is it's a process of communication. It's taking engagement and forming it, editing it into, you know. Right. And yeah, so no, I mean, just like in every day, like if we looked at our lives as a case study, it's hard for me to separate the just the process of mediation, communication and mediatization and how daily life is transformed by translating it into communication. And so like for me, like um, mediatization is all about change. So you have media communication on one side and you have culture and society on the other. And they're in a relationship that happens because they're both changing each other. And I mean, that, of course, that kind of makes sense. I, it made me think of the triangle that I brought up last week where it's place, power and freedom. 
and the role that mediatization has in changing those nowadays, giving more, I guess, giving more power to the people and giving you more of a agency on, on what you think and how much power media might have on controlling a conversation. Right. Um, yeah. So I think that it's more of a level playing field. I know we're going to talk about some of the negatives next week, so I, I won't go too much into that, but it did, uh, it did bring that, uh, identity triangle to mind. Yeah, no, I think that's a really good connection because uh, mediatization can be connected to power. I mean, at least that's what I think of because that's one of the reasons why we wanted to do this podcast in the first place to accumulate some power and to access some opportunity that, you know, that media can open up. I mean, what do you think, Serena? Um, yeah. Um, Mediatization. Um, I mean, it's an interest. It's interesting because it is how, you know, going forward, how people, um, you know, how they're communicating. But it's interesting how institutions um, are using it as a resource to communicate their message. I know we'll talk about that more um, next next week next time but i guess also like looking at the basics of it it's the technology that we use social media online and then like how we use those aesthetics to communicate a message like on instagram and how you might make that look you know in order to communicate to a certain tribe or a certain set of people that brings up the whole issue of engagement, too, because if you're going to mediatize something, it's important, at least if you have any kind of reason for mediatize, mediatizing something, uh, or, you know, mediating it, then, um, and you want to, you know, for it to register, it needs to appeal to feeling, it needs to appeal to thought, it needs to spark um, an interpretation, or maybe even something more impactful, you know, like a specific behavior. So how do you get feeling and thinking and, you know, intention and message across? Yeah, I mean, aesthetic does like really play a role in it. And I mean, I love aesthetic, but it's interesting to think that in order to send out a message, you almost have to make it appeal to someone other than yourself, or you're, it has to appeal to a group that's not your own group because you're making an appeal. And um, so it's interesting what it does to identity. It opens up identity and it's like, um, it moves you from being on the edge of society to being, you know, more into the mainstream, because if you didn't want to be more in the mainstream, then you wouldn't have any reason to send out the media in the first place. So it moves you from the fringes to more into the center and that's a way of shaping um, cultural meaning and, you know, having your voice heard and actually having an impact. But at the same time, it's a trade-off because as soon as you're part of the mainstream in the center, you're going to be impacted. 
you've entered into the storm, you're in the wrestling ring, and you're going to be a part of things now. And you're, you're going to be influenced by that. You're going to be shaped by what it means to communicate with an audience that just that isn't just your group or just yourself. And I mean, I think that that dynamic change that happens is interesting. I mean, of course, it's good and it's bad. And it depends on, it's very particular according to who's involved and what groups are involved. But um, yeah, I really like that connection, Rick, to power and freedom. Um, because, I, I mean, social media, it's been around for a while now, but it certainly enables like a wider spread of just communication freedom than books did and television did or radio did at um that's another thing is that media accumulates it's very rare that a form of media goes away they just it keeps building and it keeps building and it keeps building and um books haven't gone away movies haven't gone away television radio conversation hasn't gone away and now i mean we might have fluctuating platforms but I myself am just curious to see um, what happens and what the next thing is and the expectation that social media will go away. If that were to happen, they wouldn't be following the norm of what happens to media. It usually sticks around. Formats don't usually leave, do they? Can you think of any formats that have just gone? Maybe the telegraph? <laughs> Smoke signals? I don't know. Yeah, but I guess it. Uh, you know, communication, it, it's uh, its true, it's, it's evolved. Yeah, I mean, once you have the that evolution, I don't, I don't think it's very easy to go back. And now everyone is, it's like you were saying, everyone is in the circle um, before computers and before cell phones. Uh, there was, I mean, even just before, before computers, there was a clear divide on who controlled the conversation. You had these media companies, you would turn into the nine o'clock news, you would read your newspaper, these, you know, the New York Times, ABC, whoever, BBC, whoever is telling you the news, that's what you get. And I know you would have like small, um, small magazines and journals and things like that, where people had the opportunity to kind of control and, and feed into the conversation and hopefully provide some kind of change. But the kind of change that we have now that an individual is capable of with just a phone is so far ahead than anything that used to be before computers. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I remember zines. They, maybe that's been something that's become more of a niche thing where you could put together a zine and publish something and it's on paper. But I think a lot of them went online too. After a while, it would just kind of make sense unless you're making a, a certain point about staying a magazine or a zine. Then, Yeah. And a lot of them narrowed down to once a year or twice a year. <laughs> so while they stuck around, it's not, it's not something that like they always do. Yeah. I think um, something it's an interesting question to ask because I like to bring theory into something that's meaningful and something that applies to every day. And there's this idea of a mediatized world and 
Andreas Hepp is one of the thinkers around this, where um, you have mediatized worlds and you have basically around um, a media ensemble, you have a constellation of actors, people who are communicating through certain forms, and they're all framed by um, this theme. So you can take almost any subject and any perspective on a subject and say you want it to be health or healthy walking or, you know, eating kale. And basically you take a theme and you can, that becomes a frame. And then you have people who are participating in that media world by communicating around it. And, um, that example and the fact that you can frame any subject like that kind of reveals how we're all involved in so many what they describe as part-time realities. And so we're all involved in part-time realities. Um, just looking at my iPad here for notes, I see like little indications of other realities that are coming in that I'm just kind of excluding from my awareness right now because I'm talking about one particular thing. But these realities, there's no way that they can't interfere with each other. And a lot of times we get enrolled into these realities without even being consciously aware of it. I mean, is that something that you can see or is that something you would agree with? That we just get enrolled in realities that involve our time, our, our focus, and before we know it, we're kind of swept away in it. Does that ever happen? Yeah, I think that's, um, you know, the status quo. Um, that I mean, that's what you rely on, is the fact that people will follow um, unconsciously. That's what I believe. Yeah. That's what, that's what you play on, is their unconscious following. You know, when, oh. you're, uh, when you mediatize information. And I'm talking from, like, you know, from a political or um, a corporation, an advertising corporation. Oh, yes, yeah, the same. Yeah, as a marketer, that would be... As a marketer, that, that, that's, that's where I'm coming from, is, this, is that's what you rely on. You rely on the unconscious ability of people who work nine to five, have a nuclear family, and then the iterations of that, people who aren't in that nine to five that feel like they're outside, and then you can market to their kind of needs or wants and create desire just through showing a certain amount of information. Right. And, you know, I think what you're saying also kind of points to the power of the the consumer, at least on the unconscious level, because if you're not putting something out there that's going to appeal to their unconscious, then you better stumble onto what will appeal because you know their, you know, advertising campaigns are known for failing, for not, you know, generating the results that, that are wanted. And, you know, it's not just a check on a list that, oh, stimulate desire. There has to be like a resonance there. And, you know, corporations, they're not, they can't act in a vacuum. They have to be, you know, they have to relate to the, at least the unconscious, maybe the conscious level of the consumer. But that really speaks to the power of culture, don't you think? Yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely does. And it's interesting, um, Rick, what you were saying earlier about 
how um, about zines, zines and stuff, because I, I did an essay on uh, print magazines and how it's um, the rise of you know, more focused magazines and how the shutting down of mainstream magazines. I think Glamour has gone online now, yeah, rather than printing and just the difference between the way people process that information and how we're yeah. changing and maybe in the future we won't need print, who knows? Well, actually I did my, <laughs> I did my two first dissertations on why print is not dead. Oh my gosh, and <laughs> it's like it's it's not gonna go away. Um, it I, I can see how it is shrunk, especially in the major, you know, like Condé Nast publisher juggernauts. Uh, yeah, that's definitely like they've felt a change, but. I just, you know, you keep seeing other magazines pop up and um, magazines that sure are niche, uh, but also magazines that are trying something new that are still glossies. Like, uh, for example, you have like Neta Porter who produces Porter magazine uh, four times a year. And then every week they produced uh, the edit, which is the online magazine. And the online magazine is not anything to to cough at they have all of the celebrities that you can have on you know uh one of your glossies with a full editorial and then when you have the print magazine that they do once a you know once every season uh you have the ability to shop the magazine with your phone you have interactive things that you can do with the app and as you're um going through the magazine for example you know if you're reading they have a lot of articles uh on women in media or vacation spots and if you look at it through your phone there's links there's videos there's extra things that you can see so that's integrating other other aspects of technology that maybe kicked out those major juggernaut magazines that couldn't keep up and this yeah. sounds like it's really like colonizing your life through <laughs> and turning it like different elements of your life into a consumer opportunity. Like if you can connect shopping with, you know, where you travel, if you can connect shopping with your career ambitions, then that's opening doors to brand positioning. Well, yeah. And I mean, yeah, but they they are very specific. If you're looking at Neta Porter, they're a luxury, you know, a luxury brand where you the if you're the kind of customer that buys through Neta Porter, you want it fast, you want it to look nice, um, you want uh, the convenience. They have a concierge option as well. Uh, if you're looking at their magazine online or at the physical magazine and you see a dress, they make it as easy as possible for you to buy that dress and have it tomorrow or the same day, even if you're in the major cities. So you're talking about convenience and time is money. 
if you're that target, if you're that customer um, that they're going after, so they're doing that. Yeah, you expect a level of service. Yeah. I mean, tell yeah. me more about t- tell me more about it, ha- how this uh, does this relate to your studies. Well, um, the I guess when you say the mediatized world of whatever brand I'm going to be looking at. Um, so the brand consumption would be like the mediatized world as it's seen on Instagram. So I would be looking at the constellation of actors. Um, the brand aesthetic would be the thematic framing. Um, the forms of communication would be photography and digital publishing, um, text, uh, you know, that accompanies an Instagram post. And so then they all form this, uh, media ensemble. And um, so, yeah, um, the, then the question comes in. So what, is, how is mediatization impacting the lives of these people who are Instagramming? And how is uh, the use of Instagram by these consumers impacting the brand itself? And I can think of an example like Patrick Church. And um, he just recently initiated a marketing campaign where social media, he invited the general public in to you know, be featured in his campaign. So you can directly see like um, the influence of social media and the people who are loyal to his brand impacting how he sees his brand and how he wants to present his brand. That's an obvious example is, you know, it's very evident, but I want to know the motivations for um, and the rewards for mediatizing the um, the relationship for the consumer. What is it allowing them to do, and um, and you know why are they making this? Why are they paying? Why have they negotiated their participation in this? So again, that would be like the mediatized world, and it's having an impact in one direction, but it's also having an impact in another direction. It's not just one-sided, but, you know, that balance of impact, um, of course, would depend on, you know, the particular um, consumer, the particular brand, you know, any number of things, but that's what I'm looking to uncover. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. Yeah, and it goes back to the definition, how process of communication transforms society. And you're looking at this pretty new process and how it's transforming society. Yeah. And, you know, I really don't think designers um, have a clear understanding of what wearing their fashion does for the wearer. I, I don't know. I mean, because I just think of them being so separated, like socioeconomically, geographically, that, you know, the designers might have an idea. Or, but I think they're much more informed on the design process than they are about the wearing and the practice of wearing it and what, you know, what comes from that. So, I, I mean, yeah, this is like one of the very fundamental questions of why my PhD is going to be about this, because I think it's not well known and it's dynamic. So it's always changing. To me, it's just endlessly fascinating. It is. It sounds fascinating. I can't wait to read it. Oh, thanks. <laughs> In a few years. Oh no, there's that reminder. <laughs> okay, well, Serena, you have to keep us updated on this week. Um, please. 
Yeah, I will do for sure. And just send us texts, send us pictures whenever you can. Let us know how it's going. This is amazing. All right. Well, thank you, everybody. I've really enjoyed the conversation. I hope you have too. And enjoy your week. Yeah, All right. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed it. Make sure you subscribe to our podcast. We put it out weekly. And follow us on social media. We're on every platform. Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. We're everywhere.